Section 3 of Harper's Young People, Volume 1, Issue 16, February 17, 1880. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Goodbytes. Harper's Young People, Volume 1, Issue 16, February 17, 1880. The Fairy Painters The Fairy Queen had built herself a palace of gold and crystal. The rooms were hung with tapestry of rose-leaves, and the floors were carpeted with moss. The great hall was the grandest part of all. The ceiling was made of mother-of-pearl, and the walls of ivory, and the lights which hung from the roof sparkled with diamonds. These ivory walls were to be covered with paintings, so the queen called the fairy artists and bade them all paint a picture for her by a certain day. "'He whose picture is best,' she said, "'shall paint my hall to his everlasting renown, and I will raise him besides to the highest fairy honours.' The youngest of the fairy painters was Tintabel. He could draw a face so exquisite that it was happiness only to gaze at it, or so sad that no one could see it without tears. No fairy longed as he did for the glory and renown of painting the queen's palace. He wandered out into the wood to dream his idea into loveliness before he wrought it with his hand. "'Never shall be picture like my picture,' he said aloud. "'I will steal the colors of heaven and trace spirit forms.' But Orgolino, that wicked fairy, heard him. Now Argolino painted very grandly. He could draw wild and strong and terrible beings, which thrilled the gazer with wonder and awe. Of all his rivals he feared Tintabel only. So when he saw him alone in the wood, he rejoiced wickedly and said, Now I will rid myself of a foe. And he flew down upon the poor Tintabel, and being a more powerful fairy, he caught him and pinned his wings together with magic thorns, and fastened him down with them among the fungus and toadstools of the damp wood. Then he flew away exulting and painted day and night, it was a magnificent picture, with stately figures, powerful and triumphant, and Orgolino's heart swelled with pride at his work, and he said to himself, I might have left that poor wretch alone. The weakling could do nothing like this. Meanwhile Tintabel cried bitterly, because his hope was lost, his praise would never be heard among the fairies, and the beauty he had hoped to create he should never see. The elf that lived in the toadstool looked up as the tears fell upon him, and gathered them up from his fungus coat, where they sparkled like dew. What sweet water, he said. "'Alas!' sighed Tintabel. "'Alas for my vanished hopes! "'Oh, how lovely should my picture have been, "'and now I am bound down here to uselessness!' "'And he could not feel the pain of his bruised and bound wings "'because of the pain at his heart. "'The elf in the toadstool looked up and said, "'Fairy, paint me a picture here on the smooth surface of the toadstool, "'for I have never seen one.' "'Tintabel stopped his wailing to think how wretched was the elf "'who had never seen a picture. "'Ah, elf,' he said, "'I have neither pencil nor colours. "'How can I paint?' But the elf pointed to one of the thorns which fastened Tintabel's wings. The end was long, so that the fairy could reach it. "'There is a pencil,' said the elf, and the artist's longing came upon the fairy, and he seized the thorn. Poor hurt wings! How they quivered and pained as the point of their fastenings pressed hither and thither over the surface of the toadstool, and crushed and dragged and rent them in its course. But the thorn had a magic in it, and Tintabel found it possessed more than fairy power. The sharper his pain, the more perfect the stroke he could make. As the delicate film of the wing was torn, the rainbow tints dropped off, and gave him lovelier colours than the hues of heaven, and the elf held up his tears as water for the painting. He painted his remembrance of fairyland, and his weariness of earth. When the appointed day came, the fairy queen called her painters together. The great hall was filled with them, but of all the pictures none was so great as Argolino's. He had painted The Triumph of Strength. Then said the queen, Where is Tintabel? And no one knew. He has not cared to obey your majesty's command, 
said Argolino. But the queen looked at him steadily and said, Tintabel must be found. Then all the fairies went in search of him. Soon one returned and said, Tintabel is bound in the wood among the fungus and the toadstools, and before him is a picture more beautiful than any fairy ever saw. Come, said the queen, and her subjects followed her to the wood. There on the white toadstool's top was a tiny picture, lovelier and grander at once than any fancy could dream, and it showed the triumph of pain. Then Orgolino was turned out into the wood among the cold and creeping things, and Tintabel was taken to great honor. A Wide-Awake Russian Sentry by David Kerr Eighty or ninety years ago, when the Russians had a good many wars upon their hands, their best general was Marshal Alexander Suvorov, whose name is still famous in Russia. Any old soldier you meet there will tell you plenty of stories about him, and strange enough stories, too, for he was a very curious kind of man. In the coldest weather, when even the hardiest soldiers were wrapping themselves up, he would go about in his shirt-sleeves, just as if it were summer, and very often he would be up before anyone else in the camp was astir, and startle the first officer whom he saw coming out of his tent by crowing like a rooster as loud as he could, just as if to say, you ought to have been out before. Then, too, Count and General, though he was, dining with the Empress herself almost every week, and going about the palace as he pleased, he dressed as plainly as any peasant, and slept on straw like a common soldier. Once or twice the palace servants, seeing this untidy little fellow coming up to the grand entrance, took him for a tramp and wanted to drive him away, but they soon found out that that would not do. Another of his queer ways was to try and puzzle anyone he met by asking him all sorts of strange questions, such as how many stars there were in the sky, how many drops of water in the sea, and so forth. He did puzzle a good many people in this way, but once or twice he got an answer quite as smart as his questions, and that was just what he liked. One day a soldier came to him with a dispatch, and Suvorov, seeing that he was quite a young, simple-looking fellow, thought it would be good fun to try his hand upon him. "'How many fish are there in the sea?' he asked. "'Just exactly as many as haven't been caught yet,' answered the lad at once. The general was rather taken aback, but he went on nevertheless. "'If you were in a besieged town without food, how would you supply yourself?' "'From the enemy.' "'How far is it from here to the moon?' Two of Your Excellency's forced marches.' Suvorov smiled and looked pleased, for he was very proud of being able to move his men so quickly, and had won many a victory by it. "'Which of your officers do you like best?' was the next question. "'Captain Maslov?' Now this Captain Maslov happened to be a very handsome young fellow, while Suvorov himself was frightfully ugly, so he thought he would catch the soldier in a trap by asking him, "'What's the difference between your captain and myself?' "'Why,' said the soldier, looking slyly at him, "'my captain can't make me a corporal, but your excellency has only to say the word.' The general burst into a loud laugh, and clapping him on the shoulder, said, "'Well, then, I do say the word. You're a corporal from this day forth, and a right good one you'll make. If I can find another man as smart as you, I'll make him a sergeant.' Two or three months after this adventure, Suvorov and his army were down on the lower Danube, keeping watch over the Turks, in the middle of the hardest winter that had been known in that country for many a year. But, of course, being Russians, they didn't mind that much, and Suvorov went about in the snow and the frost as if he didn't know what cold was. Well, one bitter night in the beginning of January, the old general was making the round of the camp as usual, to see that his sentinels were all keeping good watch at the outposts, when suddenly he came upon a sentry who seemed to have got the coldest place of all, for he was right down upon the bank of the river, with a cold wind blowing through him as if it would cut him in two. "'Good evening, brother,' said the general, speaking as if he were only a common soldier, too. "'Good evening,' answered the sentinel, pretending not to know him, although he had recognized the general's voice in a moment. "'Plenty of stars out tonight,' went on Suvorov, looking up at the frosty sky. "'Can you tell me how many of them there are altogether?' "'Just wait a bit, and I'll count,' said the soldier, quite coolly. And forthwith he began. One, two, three, four, five, six, and so on, as if he were never going to leave off. 
At first Suvorov was rather amused at his smartness, but he soon found the game getting much too cold to be pleasant, for he was in his usual light dress, while the sentry at least had on a good thick frieze coat. Keener and keener blew the bitter night wind, till the poor old general felt as if he should never be warm again. For a while he bore up manfully, hoping the soldier would get tired and leave off, but when the man got up to a thousand, and was still counting away as if he meant to keep it up all night, Suvorov could stand it no longer. "'What's your name, my fine fellow?' asked he, as well as his chattering teeth would let him. "'Vasily Basil Pushkin,' answered the soldier, private in the seventh foot. Footnote. All purely Russian names end either in off or in, the skis being all Polish, and the Kos all Cossack. End footnote. "'Very good.' said the marshal. I won't forget you. Good night. The next morning Pushkin was sent for to the general's quarters, and Suvorov, turning to his staff officers, said, Gentlemen, here is a man whom I tried to fool last night, but I met my match and something more. I said I'd make any man a sergeant who was smart enough for that, and I must keep my word. And he did so that very day. End of section 3. Recording by Goodbites.